welcome. This is The Professor and the Hack. We're at episode 34. I'm the hack, Hugh Rimminton, and with me, as always, is Professor of Politics and 10 Network Political Editor Peter Van Onselen, PVO. Hello to you. How are you going? Better than Michael McCormick and Barnaby Joyce. What a... We've got so much to talk about. Um, Let's clip into it. Let's start with the Nationals because... If ever there was a kind of a, um, you know, plant a landmine, then jump on top of it, it was the National Party uh, that's managed to convert uh, Bridget McKenzie's woes into a sort of a party-splitting disaster. What happened in the vote? How close did Barnaby go to becoming Deputy Prime Minister again? Well, let's just say this quickly before even looking at the numbers. What about their timing? I mean, if timing is everything, on the day that bushfire victims are meant to be, you know, if, if you like, mourned and, and the firefighters are meant to be celebrated in a day of parliament where there's no question time and no politicking, the nationals picked that day to have their leadership spill? I mean, these are their constituents. The fires were in the regions. They're meant to be the party of the regions, but we can, you know, get into all of that caper. I hear that it was 11.10, but the Barnaby Joyce camp are much more wedded to that number than the Michael McCormick camp. The Michael McCormick camp are trying to argue it was as far out as 15 versus 6, but there's no way uh, that it was that high. The issue is whether it was 11.10 or maybe 12.9 when you look at the individuals. But the point, the wider point for me is how silly is it that they don't release the numbers? Labor does, the Liberal Party do, the Nationals have a whip and one scrutineer agreed by both sides. Nobody else in the party room gets told what the numbers were, so it doesn't leak from them. And the whip and the and the scrutineer are sworn to secrecy, and then they destroy the ballots. So what this means is it leaves open, far from being a, a situation which leads to greater stability uh, because the numbers aren't known, it just leads it open for people to speculate and bicker over what the numbers might be, how close Barnaby got to exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, whether that's an encouragement for him to have another crack. What is he going to do? Well, I, I think he'll go again if he thinks he's got the numbers. So he, he thought he had the numbers last time. It was interesting, the night before, uh, even the Prime Minister's office thought that Barnaby Joyce had the numbers. That would have been a bad night for them. Uh, they might have drunk themselves to sleep collectively. But by morning, that had swung around, evidently, with the fact that McCormick won. To what extent, though, we don't know. And one of the reasons for that was because Barnaby Joyce had less offerings to play with than Michael McCormick, which is unusual. Normally, it's the challenger who can say, well, I'll promote this person or I'll promote that person. I'll dump this McCormick supporter and I'll dump that McCormick supporter. But because Bridget McKenzie had gone, which no doubt we'll get to, because Matt Canavan, to try to stir support for Barnaby Joyce, had stepped down from the cabinet, that left a number of positions open, not just those two cabinet spots, but then if Darren Chester goes up as a McCormick supporter, that opened up his junior ministry. There was the potential of the Senate leadership as an offering as well, and there's a lot of views around that Bridget McKenzie getting the Senate leadership was a way that ensured that she stayed with McCormick rather than left him in the wake of sports rorts. So it was just messy all round. I think Barnaby Joyce will go again if he thinks he has the numbers. It's as simple as that. Let's look at what the implications of that might mean for the National Party and the stability in the coalition. But let's go to Bridget McKenzie because this is where it started, the sports mm. rorts saga. Uh, the Auditor General had a damning report against her handling of that, saying that it was... Hugh, Hugh, what are you talking about? Don't worry about that because 
Scott Morrison's political chief of staff, who now owes his job as the secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Phil Gaitchens, he's done a report. Now, we're not allowed to see that because the Prime Minister won't release it. He's put it under Cabinet confidentiality. But he has selectively cherry-picked from it. And he apparently that report says everything's fine. Don't worry about the Auditor General and the esteemed independent person arm's length from the government and the Prime Minister. Uh, Scott Morrison's former political chief of staff, he says, hey, it's all okay, apparently, not that we've seen well, it. Yeah, so but, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. We should move on, shouldn't we? But this is actually goes to, you know, there's so many issues to unpick here. But one of them is, is that go back to the original claim about the use of taxpayer money to essentially uh, rort uh, a political process to target, as the Auditor General found that was indeed happening, uh, seats that the coalition held or were targeting from other parties, Labor and other parties, in order to use this $100 million, a big chunk of it, in sports grants to try to swing their prospects at the election, something that's been acknowledged by uh, others in the National Party since. There is no sense of shame over this, which means it must surely happen again because it was a technicality that took out Bridget McKenzie and then while she's necessarily now flung from Cabinet uh, by having to stand down, the very first act of the National Party as the dust settles is to retain her as the party's <laughs> leader know. in the Senate. It's extraordinary. And, and let's, let's – and I know you already were saying this, but let's make – let's amplify the point that – she only stepped down on the technicality of the membership of a gun club that she did not declare, which received $35,000. She did not step down for the $100 million of grants allocations, which overwhelmingly, the Auditor General said, were partisan by nature, which breached guidelines, according to the Auditor General. And in fact, you then had with the Parliament, you on the Tuesday, you had her get selected to retain the Senate leadership of the Nationals. And on the Wednesday morning television, you had Michael McCormick actually congratulating her when quizzed by the ABC about sports rorts, congratulating her for the stellar job she did divvying up those sports grants. I mean, when the Fonz jumped the shark, that became a terminology that we all use going forward. This government has jumped the shark. It is extraordinary They've got no shame, Hugh. They are actually crowing about the very thing that the Auditor-General was scathing about. What it means is is that with all the other things that are going on, the National Party internal behaviour as much as anything else, is, it, is that this caravan is going to move on. Oh, and, well, not, not if I have anything to do with yeah. it. And I, hope not if, and I hope not if you do as well. I've literally, before this discussion, I penned a piece that's going to go on the Oz online. I'm going to be you know, watching intently when question time starts, assuming that Labor go there. We'll have the Senate inquiry as well. You know, Short of the Prime Minister deciding to jump in some Tony Abbott-style budgie smugglers and do a lap of Parliament, I don't think anything's going to distract me from this. I just hope that that's the wider view as well, because this can't be allowed to be let go for the same reasons that we got lost in expletives the last time we chatted. It's funny because the... Uh, on Insiders, Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, and this is before the official uh, announcement that Bridget McKenzie was going to stand down as a consequence of the Gaitchen's report, said mm. that things would change in future. There was nothing wrong with the sports rorts program. There was no rorting. There was nothing wrong, but things will change in future. So, you know, r trust them. Trust them. But I'm a good cook, yeah. Uh, I'm a good cook, Hugh, but I'm going to completely change the way I cook 
in future so that people choose to eat my meals. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about this is, is that, uh, you know, all power to your arm, uh, PVO, and and your energies in this issue. <laughs> but is there not been a clear signal from this government? Again, as you as you talk about on the Wednesday morning afterwards where you've got, you know, senior figures like McCormack getting up and defending Bridget McKenzie, that essentially the signal to the taxpayer, to the voter is, you know what, we lost a little bit of skin on this, but the overall benefits were there for us. It did help us scrape, scrape across the line. Uh, of course we're going to do it again. It worked. Yeah, well, and guess what? And guess what? Let me add this into the mix for listeners to potentially throw their devices out the window, maybe get to the end of the podcast before you do. The, the, the other thing is, uh, I, I don't want to give away exactly where, but you know, let's say you know, sources close to Scott Morrison, their argument internally for not releasing the Gaitchen's report that they selectively cherry pick from uh, when when using it to defend Bridget McKenzie and sports rorts, even though she had to go on a technicality, their argument is, well, we're not going to release it because we don't want to set the precedent. If we release it, then the next time one of these reports comes out, we'll be forced to release that one too because we'll have set the precedent. And to that I say, well, isn't that just great? You know, why would you want to set a precedent of transparency? And honestly, in government. A precedent, better to send a precedence of, you know, cover-up. Of and deviousness. This, exactly. And this comes at the same time that the PM, when he did that media conference on the Sunday, said, you know, transparency matters, accountability matters, um, so therefore Bridget's got to go, oh, no, but I'm not going to release the report. And we now know from sources close to him They've got a strategy in not releasing the report. It's not just the contents of it that they don't want to be read. They don't want other reports to be able to be released where it sets a precedent. God help us. You know, seriously, it, it's – I'm almost lost for words with how bad this is. And my fear is that the dogs bark and the caravan moves on. My fear is that people aren't as outraged as me because they have low expectations to begin with with the political class. People may be more cynical and have lower expectations uh, than yourself, good professor. Let's dwell for a second, though, on what actually was going on inside the National Party, the fact that Barnaby Joyce, for all um, the scandals, for all the bizarre behaviour that we've seen, came within a vote or perhaps two votes or maybe three votes, who knows, to becoming the Deputy Prime Minister again, suggests that there is, at least in the minds of some within the National Party, a sense of unfinished business, and that unfinished business is seated a little bit around water and some of those other issues, but it's really seated in mining and climate change and the defence of those industries and the rejection of that science, and that is still a an enormously powerful instinct within the National Party. What, what, what do you read into what we've seen happening in the National Party from Canavan, from Barnaby Joyce and from the supporters of that camp? Yeah, I, th- I think that split that you identify is exactly what's happening. And it, also, it almost overlaps, not exactly to fit, but it almost overlaps as a geographical split as well, north versus south. In other words, the Queensland Nationals versus the New South Wales and in particular also the Victorian Nationals. Now, Barnaby Joyce might be in northern New South Wales, but of course he was first elected to Parliament as a Queensland Senator before he uh, moved to the lower house to take Tony Windsor's seat and and fulfil his ambition, albeit temporarily, to become Deputy Prime Minister. He very much represents those northern Queensland 
nationals like your George Christiansons and your Matt Canavans and others. Now, there's the odd one that breaks out of that, but they tend to break out of that, um, like I'm sure Laundie, because they are with the incumbent rather than because they are enamoured by Michael McCormick. He's seen as from that Riverina area. He, he very much falls into that category of being one of the you know southern nationals. And, and that geographical divide comes back to exactly what you say. You know, coal and mining and, by extension, climate change as a contested space versus farming communities and regional areas, uh, which the McCormicks and the Bridget McKenzies uh, and the Darren Chesters are more identified with. It's not that they don't also have an attitude on some of the coal mining communities, but they've got a strong point as well towards things like the National Farmers Federation, who actually have a different view on climate change. But, but, and this is the, the interesting point, they are nonetheless forced to tow a certain amount of the line uh, that come from a lot of the Queensland nationals around coal mining and around climate change because they don't win on their own. They need to pick Queenslanders off the Barnaby Joyce rump or else they can't hold on. And people like Little Proud and Michelle Laundy, who I mentioned, they are important uh, to being able to do that. So therefore, they do have to continue uh, to defend some of those positions, which put them in, into immediate clashing with, you know, inner city liberal uh, MPs, for example. It's interesting, is it, because it leaves Little Proud having to use these kind of weird circumlocutions <laughs> there where he's trying to sort of say, well, I'm not a scientist, I kind of accept the science, but therefore I don't want to talk about that, I want to talk about something else. Or, let, you know, it, it, you can't actually take a position that says, look, you know, we're sensible people, we recognise the science is, is, is consistent on this, broadly speaking, there are, around the margins there are some disputes about it, but the fundamentals of the science are the same and that the country is going to need us to grapple with those realities and no one needs to do it more than those who are living in the region, so let's get on with it. Uh, they can't say that. No, no, they absolutely can't. And it, it's interesting to see the contortions that he tries to go through. He doesn't want to be accused of being a climate denier. So he says, I don't deny the science. But then he doesn't want to be a climate believer in climate change because then he loses those sections of the National Party we've just been talking about. So he follows up the I don't deny the science by saying, but I don't accept it, or he doesn't quite word it as pointedly as that, because I'm not a scientist. And so he sort of tries to look like he's sitting somewhere in the middle, um, but in fact, I think he just looks quite confused. And, and it's awkward because they cop it from people that believe the science of climate change for understandable reasons when taking that position. But they're also at risk, as we see from the challenge that came from Barnaby Joyce and co, from those that actually wholeheartedly have a problem with the science and are openly prepared to say so because they, they call out the weasel words. You're listening to Peter Van Onselen, the professor. I'm the hack, Hugh Rimminson. We're going to have a chat about what this means for the uh, major coalition partner, the Liberal Party and the Prime Minister, and what exactly is going on with the Greens, but we'll take a quick break. Hey, Husey here. You can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Channel 10's hit show. Well, now there's more to get. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. This is uh, The Professor and the Hack with uh, Professor Peter Van Onselen, the Network 10 political editor. I'm Hugh Rimminson. I'm the hack. Um, I'm the one who's just simply mystified. I've got no idea. I've got no academic degrees or in <laughs> insights into all of this, but I uh, I do wonder with a with a wry smile what it might have looked like. The, the warmth and the handshake had Barnaby Joyce won 
and strode into the Prime Minister's office and Scott Morrison with that fixed grin on his face going, oh, welcome back, Barnaby, good to see you. It would have, I mean, that that was almost reason enough, I would have thought, for people to vote for Barnaby, wasn't it? I mean, it would have been fascinating because not only is Barnaby Joyce, if you like, and I don't necessarily mean this as a positive, but he, he is a stronger national leader than Michael McCormick, less likely uh, to fall into that lapdog accusation vis-a-vis the Liberal Party. So that immediately would be fascinating to watch someone with the personality of Morrison and the personality of Barnaby Joyce trying to get on. But then you've got to overlap that with some of the things that have been said, uh, some of the positionings that they've got, and then in particular the so-called, and the terminology is not very nice, but the so-called bonking ban uh, that is what saw the downfall of Barnaby Joyce after his relationship with one of his staffers came to light, who he's now in a relationship with, uh, yes, Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister at the time who was at the vanguard of putting that in place, but there was only one other member of the Cabinet who was really strong in his support of that so-called bonking ban, and that was Scott Morrison. So Barnaby Joyce strolling in there and thrusting his hand out and saying, it's good of you to welcome me back, I mean, it would be manna from heaven. And, 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 and Barnaby and he took this Barnaby took this deeply personally. Oh yeah. When he was flogging his book um, and doing the rounds, and and he he was being generous with his time in interviews. I interviewed him. Uh, his he had had a good relationship with Malcolm Turnbull, but that had utterly fractured, and his loathing for Turnbull at that stage was completely palpable because he felt as if that bonk ban had been had been a low blow, had been directed against him in, in a way that was, uh, you know, publicly humiliated him. And mm. so he, some of that surely he would carry into his relationship with, with Morrison. And then the other issue is, is that, of course, the, you get a coalition agreement. And given that it's not impossible that in the, ter- in the term of this parliament, Barnaby may have another crack, the circumstances might arise, and he is walking into that office with Scott Morrison, there is this thing of the coalition agreement. Can you explain for us what is a coalition agreement? Why does it matter? And how would Barnaby, if he was to become leader again, drive his issues in such a way as to make life almost impossible for Scott Morrison? Well, the first thing to say is that the coalition agreement is always secret uh, from public view. They never release it. It's a little frustrating because it means that we don't know what deals are done. But they're both private organisations, the Liberal Party and the Nationals, so they have a right of sorts uh, to, to not reveal it publicly. Even I would though, argue against that, but, but you well, go on. As I'm about to say, even though I think the public has a right to be frustrated by that because, of course, they are sort of quasi-public entities as a result of being political parties. But they run the they, country, for heaven's sake. They should oh, reveal I, what their rules are. Yes, no, no. Look, I think they should reveal it, but I'm just sort of saying, if you like, as two private organisations, technically they, they have a legal right, is probably the better way to put it, yeah. of, uh, of not releasing it. But anyway, they, they don't release it, so we don't know what's in it, but they often refer to it a little bit the way... Scott Morrison referred to the Phil Gations report without releasing it. You know, they, they cherry pick from it and, and highlight what they choose to, those who actually are aware of what it is. It's a negotiation between the two leaders. But, uh, but surely if Barnaby was to come back, given that he would have come back on what clearly was a strongly climate sceptic, climate denial, pro-mining um, basis, that's, a whole, that's the whole platform on which he's resought uh, the leadership of, of the National Party. Let's assume he's got it. To change it. Yeah. And, and so he would look to use that and his new leadership to tie up uh, Scott Morrison further 
type as freedom of movement on, on the issue of climate change. Look, I, I suspect that's right. But the interesting thing is, even if it didn't specifically change the coalition agreement, what it would change is the dynamic anyway, because the National Party under Barnaby Joyce, particularly the second time round, uh, I think he would be very heavily inclined to uh, take on the Liberals quite openly in a way that they tend to be more likely to do in opposition than they do in government. You know, usually the Nationals are quite loud with a fracturing risk to the coalition in opposition, but then they become quite subservient in government. We saw that particularly through the Howard years as the precedent. Before that, of course, you had incredibly strong figures in government for them, you know, in, in years gone by with your Nixons and your Anthonys and all the rest of them, you know, right through through time, obviously blackjack. Um, but more recently, the you know, the, the Warren Trusses and, and, and through the Howard years, you know, e- even figures like Tim Fisher, who were well-regarded, but particularly someone like a, a Anderson, they really were seen as much more subservient to the Liberals than their predecessors had been. Barnaby Joyce would be a return to the older history rather than that more recent Howard history. And that would be awkward and uncomfortable for Scott Morrison in their personal interactions, but also, as you point to, Hugh, in their policy interactions, absolutely. So it may never happen. Of course, Barnaby may may, may always be thwarted in that uh, ambition that he plainly still holds to get back into that office. But if you look at the broad issue of the day, which is about um, climate policy, it plainly is seen, including in the so-called blue-green seats, such as Warringah, which Tony Abbott lost at the last election, but also uh, Wentworth, which was temporarily lost to the independent Karen Phelps, uh, the, the challenges that are going on in some of those inner Melbourne seats that are held by the Liberal Party that are coming not from the Labor Party but from uh, greenish candidates. Um, there is... What this summer has shown us is that there is much more round-the-kitchen-table conversation about climate change and its realities and the costs across the economy, across the community as a result of of a warming planet. But there is no uh, resolution politically uh, on a path forward. And Scott Morrison seems somewhat struck, it seems to me, with the headlights in his eyes, having to make some sort of gestures that he's going to evolve the policy, uh, but at the same time not in a position where he wants to put at risk uh, gains that he made in Queensland at the last election or put at risk the coalition with the National Party. Oh, absolutely. Uh, And it's interesting, though, because Scott Morrison, I think we've talked about this before, in Queensland with the merging of the parties under the one banner of LMP, it's easier for the right Liberal Prime Minister at the right moment in time to campaign successfully in Queensland, not just on behalf of Liberals, but also on behalf of Nationals because they're they're under the one-party banner. So when Barnaby Joyce was Nationals leader and Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister, you wanted Barnaby Joyce to be the face of, of Queensland, particularly North Queensland, and he managed to hold all those seats as Malcolm's Liberals went careering backwards in 2016. But when you then saw the shift to Michael McCormick, he does not play well up in Queensland in those communities. And he became a lesser figure up there. But Scott Morrison did. I don't know that he still does, but he did at that point play well up there, particularly in contrast to Bill Shorten. So he became like the quasi-leader, not just the Liberal leader, across all of those seats on the campaign trail. But with his star having faded, and this is a bit of an underlying issue around what's happened in the Nationals, 
With Scott Morrison's star having faded on his return from Hawaii, his butchering of the handling of the bushfires initially and, and him losing a lot of political skin, he doesn't have the cachet up in North Queensland that he once did, even just as a retail politician. They no longer have Joyce. McCormick doesn't play up there either. And that's why a lot of those figures got agitated. And as Barnaby Joyce has said publicly, they were coming to him. I don't doubt that he was courting it, but they were coming to him about pushing for a spill, not just the other way around. And I think those realities of what's changed around Morrison has had a pretty important background impact on that. So who stands ready to take advantage of that, assuming those underlying issues are not resolved in one way or another before the next election? Will it be the Labor Party or will it be parties further on the right? Really good question. I think both but they don't necessarily feed off each other, do they? So Labor will be hoping to take advantage of it if it's just a throw your hands up in the air, we need to turf these guys out attitude. And if Anthony Albanese continues to do what he's been trying to do and walk more of a centrist line on some of these issues like Adani, he, he risks his left flank, perhaps even more so now that Adam Bant's Greens leader, which no doubt we'll, we'll get to in a sec. Um, but it also does work for the, the Pauline Hansons and, and One Nation Definitely, and the Bob Catter party perhaps as well, even though he's just handing over the leadership of that to his son. You've got to remember, yes, we have a preferential system, so votes come back to the major parties. But if too many votes from primary vote allocation bleed from Liberal and National candidates to right-wing parties, they never all come back. There's always some flow to the other side of politics. Uh, and that would be the thing that would worry Scott Morrison and indeed at the moment Michael McCormick. You mentioned Adam Bant, the Greens, of course, and the polls are riding high, higher than they've been for a long time, about 13% on news poll, hardly surprising, that, you know, after the summer that we've had. Richard De Natale standing down, he was a man who argued early on in his leadership that he wanted to reach across the aisle, to negotiate across a whole range of issues, to be more centrist. Uh, Adam Bant, not that personality. What is he going to do? I personally don't like the Greens shifting from Di Natale to Bant because what I liked about Di Natale was that he had that slightly more Australian Democrat feel of, as you say, reaching across the aisle, trying to not always be a protest party of the left but be prepared to negotiate other positions. And, and often they were actually leading the pack on things which both major parties eventually came to, like the Royal Commission into the Banks, for example. But I liked that about him, that, that a lot of Greens who were more radical thought he wasn't radical enough – I actually found that a positive feature for the workings of the Parliament and the Senate. Now, having said that, though, electorally, if the Greens don't have the ambition to rise into more than what they are as a protest third party, if they don't have that ambition, Adam Band's probably a better player for them. The Liberals will be glad for the switch from Di Natale to Band because that'll help get rid of the green threat in some of their inner city seats, I think, because I think Bant will be too radical for some Liberal voters who are environmentally orientated and might be okay towards someone like a Di Natale. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting threat as well for the Labor Party because Bant will really rabble-rouse on the left uh, and Anthony Albanese will need to be conscious of that. It gets very difficult for Labor because if they do find themselves in a situation where they have to do as they did, as Gillard did with Brown, Bob Brown, uh, after 2010, some sort of accommodation with the Greens. Um, Bob Brown was, you know, a number of things, but he was quite clever at seeming 
Um, mm. to, you know, to take some of the rough edges off. He was always politely dressed. He, you know, he was a doctor. He had some of those other elements about him that... Liked in Italy. Yeah. Yeah. And whereas Bant seems a bit more hard-edged in a city stuff, it'd be pretty hard for an Albanese, you would think, to meet an accommodation with Absolutely. Bant. And that that will count against Labor if it yeah, gets into tight, you know, tight numbers. It'll be hard, and Bant comes across more like that left-wing university politicking style. Uh, and I think that's what Bob Brown was in a lot of his policy scripts and Di Natale too. But as you say, their presentation and, and their professional background, it, it, it cut in a different direction. The, look, having said all of that, though, it, it is good timing for the Greens to change leaders because – they faced a really tough election at the last election because in the wake of the double disillusional election in 2016, most in, in the next half Senate election, which is the election we just saw, most Greens were up for re-election. And as a result, uh, that was a tough one because they had to try to hold positions in pretty much every state. And they did that. Uh, and as a result of doing that, they're now at the next half Senate election, they have very few MPs that are up for re-election. So they, they can't really go backwards. They can only gain seats and perhaps therefore gain the balance of power in their own right. So Di Natale is handed to Band uh, far from a poison chalice. He's handed to him an opportunity to be seen as electorally successful in his first electoral out outing, which is important because it means that he won't just suddenly be, you know, if you're, if you're like thrown on the scrap heap of, of electoral failure after the next election. The challenge, though, is having a leader in the lower house. Um, he's their only lower house rep and all of their strategizing and heavy lifting in a policy sense goes on in the Senate. And now, of course, their leader's not in the Senate. But they've got so many deputy leaders who can who can take that over. Um, just before we go, PVO, the um, I, I sat on a plane coming up from Melbourne with an old mate of mine who's kicked on. Uh, she now runs. She's a big heavy hitter in in talent management and brand management and all the sort of arcane science of this. Now she revealed something to me which I thought was fascinating in polit political terms, and that is that if you're trying to get like a huge advertising campaign underway and you want someone to front it, and they'll come up with a list of names, a short list for people or whatever, they then get a focus group and they will ask that focus group, do you recognise this person, that person? And, and of course, if they don't recognise them, they're, they're not going to get that brand. But then, then everything else turns on the next question, and that is, would you want them for a neighbour? And it's remarkable that the ones who people in the general population like or would consider would be someone that they really like as a neighbour is the, the people they feel most warmly to. So Scott Cam, for example, from The Block, um, you know, he's people like the idea of having Scott Cam as a Hamish and Andy. Who wouldn't want Hamish and Andy as a neighbour? There'd be parties and they'd invite you around and that would all be cool. Some people are seen as a bit up themselves. They wouldn't be the ones who'd come and help you out if your kid was sick to, you know, get the other kid off to school, whatever it might be. Mm. But in politics, it reminded me of the famous um, analysis that said in the US that the leadership, the presidency, had always gone to the person who most Americans would prefer to have at their barbecue. Um, you know, Clinton... Yes, over George Bush Sr., uh, Bush Jr., over John Kerry, Obama, over, uh, you know, John McCain, etc. Who do you want most at your barbecue? And so just to apply this briefly, Scott Morrison, looking at that, won the 2019 election on this analysis because people felt that he would be more fun at a barbecue or perhaps a better neighbour than mm. Bill Shorten. This is very reductive, I accept that. Um <laughs> Has a bit of his neighbourliness been knocked off with the Hawaii trip? And who would be the best neighbour 
in the minds of middle Australia across our current uh, field? Well, if it's just straight up Anthony Albanese versus Scott Morrison, I, I think Albanese was always going to be more competitive as a better neighbour than than Bill Shorten um, was to Scott Morrison. But then when you throw in, as you say, post-Hawaii and post the fires response and, and some of the outing of his you know, sort of perceived or otherwise arrogance and, and failure to admit wrongdoing, I, I think that it's, he's taken a huge hit on the categorisation of would you want him as your neighbour. You know, he, he perhaps comes across now as the kind of guy that if you, can't, if you invited him over to the barbecue, he's the bloke that takes over and insists on grilling the meat and then perhaps even burns it as well and then won't take responsibility for it when that happens. You know, <laughs> I don't know that he quite has the same feel as the good neighbour uh, that he had when people were making that choice against Bill Shorten. Yeah, in fact, Felix Albo is, you know, in person, a very agreeable guy, very, very well liked across both sides, has become a little bit more wooden and cautious, I think, since he's taken the leadership. Maybe yeah, yeah, I think that's true. But it is politics, of course, not always do good neighbours become good friends. Um, we'll, um, we'll see how that one plays out. Professor Peter Van Onselen, great to talk to you as always. Talk again next week. 